Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to two passages of Scripture this morning as we think about this new year. Both of them, well, one very brief, one not so brief. But first of all, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14, and then Colossians, just the next book over, Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Actually, Abraham, out of uh, Hebrews chapter 11, would have fit very well in some ways with looking at the new year, because Abraham was definitely one who was called by God for a very specific thing that required faith in looking to the future. But we'll save that for next week to look at that a little more clearly out of the book of Hebrews. But I did want to talk to you just a little bit about today about the whole concept of, revel uh, of resolutions. Some people look at resolutions very humorously. Uh, some people make resolutions knowing that they will not keep those resolutions, that they will be something that they're just talk about for a few days and then they are done away with. You know, I, I can think of times when I made resolutions on January 1st and by January 3rd they were already blown out the window. Some of us make unrealistic resolutions. I talked with someone last year, not this year, but last year around the first year, and they said, my resolution this year is to not sin at all. And they were serious. They had every intention uh, of, of not sinning. They, they thought it was within their power, within their resolute power to be able to say, I just will not sin this year. I'm going to spend a whole year. There even one guy wrote a book who said he lived a year living biblically, and he did everything according to the scripture for one year, and in that book basically gives the idea or the impression that he never sinned, which he sinned in saying that he never sinned, but that's a whole other story in talking about that. Some people look at it and say we shouldn't make resolutions, that we really ought to just live life every day to the fullest of our intent and, and doing what is right in every respect, and so if we do that, why would there even be a need for making resolutions? And there is some element of truth to that, I suppose. But I think the scripture does give us indications that there are places where it is, it is at least implied that resolutions are not only permissible, but they are practical. And they are even a good thing to do. I look at the Apostle Paul there in Philippians chapter 3, verse 11. You remember Paul has talked about his religious heritage there and all of his legalism and how he's found that to be absolutely worthless as far as his call to Christ. And then he comes down to verse 14 and he says, here's what I do. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, what I hear Paul saying there is, here is my resolve, here is my resolution, that, that my focus in life above everything else will be that I'm going to press toward Christ glorifying him, honoring him, seeking to be like him as, as, as I best I can by God's grace. I'm going to be everything that I can that God has called me to be. I want to reach the finish line. I want to reach the goal that is set out there before me, the call of God in Christ Jesus. He even says there, as many as are perfect, let us have this attitude. Of course, the word perfect there does not mean sinless perfection, but it means a maturity, a maturing attitude. Have this attitude, and if anything else, you have, any of you have a different attitude, then God will reveal that also to you later, basically. 
But the indication there Paul is saying is we need to set our minds and we need to set our hearts in a specific direction if we want to move in that direction. So often many of us come to Christ and we say, well, I'm just going just to live life as it comes. I'm just going to be whatever it is that I'm supposed to be and do whatever I'm supposed to do as it comes along with no purpose, with no intent, with no intentionality in the whole of life. And that can be dangerous. And Paul is saying here, this is my goal, this is my intent, this is my resolution that I'm going to press on toward the goal of the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's a worthy resolution. That's a worthy goal for life. Sadly, most of us set our resolutions on kind of personal things, kind of, uh, if you will, selfish things for the most part. You know, we set the goal that, okay, this year I'm going to lose 15 pounds. That, that would be a worthy goal if it were for health purposes or whatever. But most of the time that goal is so that I'll look better, so that I'll be more attractive to people, so that they will think of me in a different manner. It's very selfish, very self-centered, very self-serving. Nowhere in Scripture do we find resolutions that are set apart like that. All the resolutions Paul has always focus on Christ, always focus on glorifying God, always focus on the path and the will of his life that God has called him for. And he sets his mind and sets his purpose on that. If you look over in Colossians chapter 3, that, that sort of a parallel thing, I think you'll see there Paul encouraging disciples to... To set resolutions, not only himself, but also uh, other believers, other Christians. In, cha in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, So as those who have been chosen of God, talking to the believers there, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, uh, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Do you, do you see what Paul is saying here to the Colossian Christians and ultimately to, to you and me? He said, listen, here are some things that you ought to set your sights on. These are personal character qualities. These are personal ministry qualities. These are personal ways of saying, I, I need to resolve under God's authority and by God's grace and strength to live out within the body of Christ, within the fellowship of the saints. These are things that I need to be about. You know, you're in Christ. You've been called of God, he says. Now put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I mean, those are, are fruit of the Spirit that, that the apostle has talked about to the Galatians that indicate that when we are walking in the Spirit, when we are in Christ, those will become natural fruit that we bear. Those will become a part of our life. 
Not because we sit around and say, oh man, I just got to show love. I got to show compassion. I got to show kindness to other people. But when we are walking in Christ, when our resolve is to know him and to press toward the, the, the goal that he has set out there, the goal of Christ Jesus, as we're walking in him, as we are our branches clinging to the vine, if you will, as Jesus used in John chapter 15, then those become the natural fruit outworkings of our life. A person who is walking with Christ does not have to pray, Oh, Lord, help me to love. Help me to be kind. Help me to be generous. Those are, those are natural fruit, natural outgrowths of being in Christ and dwelling in him and walking in him. And so we see that Paul here in all of these things says, here's what you need to do. Let these things be a reality in your life. Let these things be things that are growing and maturing, not because you can produce them, not because you can make them happen, but because you realize your position in Christ. You recognize that you are in him. You know that one of my heroes of the faith is, is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, when he was just a, a young man of 19, now realize Jonathan Edwards wrote his first philosophical book when he was 13, observing spiders. I mean, I did just he, he was not like us. Let's just, I'll go ahead and admit that. Uh, he, was, he didn't have Nintendo, and he didn't have Wii, and he didn't have movies and DVDs and, and to distract him. He only focused on the Word of God. I recognize that we live in a different time than that, but yet I think there's a lot we can learn from someone like a Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards, when he was 19 years old, he set out one year, or at, in his 19th year, to just write some resolutions, personal resolutions, life resolutions. He ended up writing 70 of them. The first 21 or so, he wrote in the first sitting. He sat down, he began to write, and he wrote out 21 resolutions of what he would like to see happen in his life over the next year and indeed for the rest of his life. And, and they're quite enlightening. I'm, I'm going to share a few of them with you, not a lot of them. But, but I do want to concentrate for a minute on what I guess you would call the preface to his resolutions. Because they're a lot like, they fit with what Paul is saying to the Colossians and what Paul is saying to the Philippian Christians about walking in Christ and being in Christ. The, the, the preface that he makes, only three lines long if it's typed out in this font I've got it typed out in, but it, it, it's not very lengthy, but it says a lot. He starts out those resolutions by saying this, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. That's it. Before he sits out, and then he, sort of a second part of that, he says, remember to read over these resolutions once a week. So he didn't just make them like we do and then forget them. He said, I'm going to write them down. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to put them in a way that I can read them every week. And every week, I'm going to come back to them. But I recognize that I can't keep them. I'm going to have to depend on Christ. I think Edwards gives us some real direction in that preamble when he simply saw that preface, when he says three things about looking at these resolutions. He starts out by saying, being sensible. Being sensible. That is, I'm, pro I'm approaching this with a clear understanding 
of what resolutions can become in our lives. They can become meaningless. They can become useless because we set out to do them ourselves. Let me ask you this. As people who have probably made resolutions in the past, where did you place the focus on those resolutions? I mean, on the, the accomplishment of those resolutions. Was it a focus on, I'm going to do this? I am going to accomplish this. I'm going to grit my teeth. I'm going to make this happen, even if it kills me. I mean, has that been your focus? I am going to do this. I can accomplish this. Well, Edwards would say, then you not approach them very sensibly. You approach them with a very self-centered focus. You've approached them thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. You've approached them not recognizing that you may have great intentions, but there is still that sin nature that dwells within you that, that Paul talked about in Romans 7 that is going to fight against that with all, all of its might. It's going to do everything it can to keep you from, from keeping those resolutions. And so you've approached them very unsensibly, saying, I'm going to do this. Well, Edward says, I first of all resolve to approach these things sensibly. The second part of that is, I'm going to approach these resolutions very dependently. Not just sensibly, but dependently. Uh, he, he says here, I, I'm being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. Now, now think about that for a moment. Do you, do you realize that is absolute truth? Uh, Jesus said in John 15 when he was talking about the vine and the branches, and you are the branches, and I am the vine, and he who abides in me will bear much fruit. He talked about that, and then in verse 8 he said very clearly, but apart from me, you can't do very much. Is that what he said? No, didn't say that at all. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing, absolutely nothing. Now, we tend to approach things with, if I depend on God, I can probably accomplish more, but if I try to do it in my own strength, I can probably accomplish something, and something's better than nothing, and so I'll just approach it in my own strength. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Edward says, listen, I recognize that I am dependent on God's help, I am dependent on God's strength, I am dependent on God's grace, to be able to, to, to do anything, especially keep resolutions that I might set. And so Edward says, I'm being sensible and I'm recognizing, I'm acknowledging that I'm unable to do anything without God's help. And then he says, he approaches it with a humility. He says, I do humbly entreat. I realize entreat is a word that was very popular in, Edward's day in the 1700s that we don't necessarily go around talking about entreating a lot of things today, but basically he's just saying, I ask. I beg of God. I do humbly beg God by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions. So he says, I, I want to do it sensibly. I want to do it in dependence on God because I can't do anything without him. I acknowledge that and, and I go to him humbly and I ask him to help me keep them. Now, now, humbly 
is, is something that our culture again is kind of uh, looks at as weakness. The humble man, the meek man, the meek woman, the, the humble woman is kind of viewed in, in most caricatures in our culture as a negative thing. But the scripture says it's, a, it's the only way we can approach God. It's the only way you can come to him. If we come to God saying, God, I tell you what, I'm bringing all this good stuff with me and I'm going to do this much if you'll do a little more. God says, I'm not going to do anything and neither are you. There's humility that has to be there. And humility really is, I heard this definition years ago when I was in seminary. That was back in the dark ages, but it still, it still stands. Humility is really realizing that God and others are responsible for all your successes. Humility is recognizing that, that your successes are dependent upon your walking with him and other people who are helping you become a success. It's not because you're so great and wise and wonderful and, and, and just God's gift to the world. Your successes are contingent upon God and other people being involved in your life. That, that's why Paul here in, in Colossians talks about caring for one another, admonishing one another, teaching one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Do you realize this morning for the, last, for the first half hour, we were actually in a part of the service where we were instructed to teach one another and admonish one another through singing? I, I doubt that you turned to someone and who you thought really ought to hear that uh, song and just sang it right in their face or anything. But if we're really glorifying God, if we're really honoring him, if our focus is really on worshiping and praising him, then we are instructing one another and, and we are admonishing one another if there's someone here who's not doing that. There's just the admon admonishment of the body when we are faithfully worshiping and glorifying God and when, when someone's here who is not doing that with their whole heart, with their whole life. There is a, there's a teaching and an admonishing that takes place even in the, in the song part of the service. Then I don't have to do all of it from here. You know, there, there's that mutual ministry that comes about only by humility. Only through humility. So Edward said he sensibly and dependently and humbly approach these resolutions. And then the last thing he says is, so far as they are agreeable to his will, that is God's will, for Christ's sake, or for Christ's glory, for his sake. And he says, I want you to understand, I want these resolutions to be brought about in my life so far as they are agreeable to God's will. There may be things that I resolve from time to time that are not agreeable to God's will, and those need to be dropped. Those need to be forgotten. But so far as things are agreeable to God's will, then I want God by his grace and by his power to do that in my life, not so that I'll look better, not so that I'll look like a better Christian, but for Christ's sake so that people will see that working in my life and glorify my Father who's in heaven, that they will see my fruit, not, that it becomes good works, but it's not works from within, it's works from his spirit that build in our life, and they'll see that fruit in my life, and they will glorify God in their own life. They'll be taught, they'll be instructed, they'll be evangelized because of what God is doing in and through me as I live as he has called me to live. 
Well, what are the, some of the things that, that Edwards resolved? I love these. Like I say, I won't, I, I'm certainly not going to do all 70 of them. And I only brought the first 21 that he wrote in the first sitting uh, with me. So I, I won't even do all of them. But I want you to hear a few of these. I want you to think about how close to your resolutions these fit. Would you do that? Just listen carefully. Number one, resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. I am resolved to do whatever I do, whatever I seek to do in life, what I see to be most to God's glory, my own good and profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence. I am resolved to do whatever I do to the glory of God. That's very generic in, in some respects that kind of all of them flow out of, but he's saying, listen, that become, that's what Paul was saying when I press on to the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want all of my life and everything I do to be about his glory. Second resolution. Resolve to be continually endeavoring, I love the way he says this, to be continually endeavoring to find out some new invention and contrivance to promote the aforementioned things. That is not only am I resolved to glorify God, but I resolve to constantly be thinking about ways to invent or contrive that I might reach the four or mentioned things. That's just number one. But I want to I want to be intentional about this. I want to be pressing on about this and everything that I do. Resolve that if I ever shall grow a fall and grow dull so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. In other words, a Christian who falls out of his, his or her walk with the Lord has lost their mind. It's kind of like the, the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son there laboring in the, in the pig sties and the pig stalls and feeding the pigs? And, and the scripture says, and when he came to himself, he said, I'm going to get up from here and go back to my father and say, Father, I don't deserve to be your son, but just let me be a servant because he knew that the servants ate better than he was eating uh, there feeding the pigs. And so he said, when he came to himself, he got up out of there and he went back. Uh, a literal translation that could be when he, when he got in his right mind. And Edward says, if ever I fall from these or grow dull, how many of us have grown dull in our walk with Christ? Not, not totally fallen away from it. Not, not denied it. Not abdicated that commitment we made. But we've just grown dull in it. It's just become sort of passe in our life. I was reading this past week a, a thing that Barna put out. Barna Research put out. And it was about the church in 2010. And he came with about six characteristics, and I'll use those later on because there's a point I want to make in a sermon in Hebrews later on. I'll use all of those, but two of them that really struck me. One was that the church has become more and more biblically and theologically illiterate. That is, they really don't know what they believe. And, and, and not only do they not know what they believe, they don't know that they don't know 
what they believe. They're just happy, you know, just to come to church and go through the motions, but they are biblically and theologically illiterate. Now, you know, I, I kind of think we're a little, little different from that in a lot of ways at Grace, but, but not completely. And, and, and there's just been in our own day a dullness. We talked about that in part of Hebrews. There's been a dullness on the part of many believers who, who just simply want to kind of say, well, you know, leave the theology and leave the doctrine, leave the, the deep biblical studies to, to the seminaries and to the pastors and, and let them take care of it. We'll just, we just want to go along merrily in Zion and not think about those things. If you're going to walk with Christ, you're going to have to think about those things. Second thing he said and it really flows out of that first one that, that Barna said, was that there was, there was evidence that the Bible and doctrine was having less an impact on the church and on people's lives. In other words, they were more interested not in spiritual principles, not in biblical truths, but they were more interested in pragmatic how-tos. They'd much rather hear a sermon on how to have a great marriage than they would on the glory of the atonement. Well, you know, if you're here, you're going to hear more on the glory of the atonement because I believe if you understand the glory of the atonement and what Christ has done for you in that atonement, it'll make your marriage better ultimately. But, but they really want pragmatic things, you know, six steps to marital bliss or, or something like that. I don't have six steps. I just have what the scripture says. And there's a lot that it says, but it's wrapped up in doctrine and truth that we need to grasp. Well, Edward said, if I ever fall away or grow dull, I, I will repent. Again, a word that our culture doesn't really like to think about because if you use the word repent, you have to acknowledge there's sin and there's, there, there's a lacking there and we want to think we're really sufficient within ourselves. But Edward said, I will repent. Fourthly, he said, resolve never to do any manner of things, whether in soul or body, less or more, but that tends to the glory of God. Nor, nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. In other words, there, I won't do anything, even suffering or hurting or, 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 or my prayer life or my, or my physical life, bodily life, I want to do all things there for the glory of God. Number five was resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Now, that, that's definitely not a 21st century resolution. Because we, I, can be the, I'm the world's, maybe the world's guiltiest here. I can, I can waste more, I can waste time in some of the most creative manners. And, and really good manners, really fun manners, but it's just a waste of time. And Edward says, I don't want to waste time. I don't want to lose one moment of time, but I want to improve it in the most profitable way that I can. And he doesn't mean profit, financial profit. He means profit in his walk with Christ. Number six, and this may be my favorite, and I think it'll be my last one, but I, I like this because just the way he says it. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolve to live with all my might while I do live. You know what one of the most tragic things in much of modern culture is? We come to our life, the end of our life, and we die 
without ever having really lived. Because we've not understood the truths of God's word. We've not applied those truths to our life. We've, we've lived only for ourselves. And so when we're gone, our legacy at best is, is leaving a, a, an inherited fortune for, for our children to squander away. When all along we could have been living fully to the glory of God and using what God had given to us for his glory, for his benefit right now. I resolve to live with all my might while I do live. And seven kind of goes along with that, so I will do it too. I'm going to say that till I get to 21. Um, resolved never to do anything, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved to never do anything that I'd be afraid to do if I knew this is the last hour of my life. You know, we, we always hear questions, these theoretical questions, these, these probing questions. If you knew you were going to die next week, how would you live the next seven days? Well, Edwards is saying, I want to live in a way that it might be my last seven days, it might be my last day, but I never want to do anything that I'd be afraid to be doing when I died or when the Lord came again. I just want to do my life in a way that honors him and glorifies him in speaking and in living and in everything. He goes on to talk about death, a subject that we don't like to think about. But he said, you know, I'd like to resolve that on the occasion of my dying, to think much on the occasion of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. What does it mean to, to think much of your own dying? I mean, that's one thing, isn't it, that we don't want to think about? I, I'm always amazed. I, I love to do... Well, that sounds wrong. Uh, but I do. I, I, I'd much rather do a funeral than I had a wedding because I've never had a funeral yet to fail. But, but you know, you come, <laughs> you, you come to a funeral and, and you, you'd think a pastor would hate doing a funeral. You, you hate it in the sense of a, it's generally a saint of God that you love dearly that you're, you're going to miss. But, but there's another sense which I love to come to funerals because that's one time when I can just about get everybody in the room thinking about death. Matter of fact, we tend to avoid funerals. I, I've got friends that, uh, not pastor friends, thank goodness, they'd be in real trouble. But I've got friends who say, oh, I never go to a funeral. I never go to a funeral. Why don't you go to a funeral? I never go to a funeral because I don't like to think about death. See, you go to a funeral, it brings you face to face with your own mortality. All of us, even guys my age, which are realizing more and more that that's coming sooner rather than, than later, uh, you come to that point and you say, you know, you know I, don't, I don't like to think about my own mortality. I feel like I'm somewhat immortal. I will never die. Uh, kids or young people are especially that way. And I look back at some of the things I did when I was a teenager and I realized I did them because I didn't think there was any way I could die. And I look back on them now and I wonder why I didn't die. You know? It's merely by the grace of God. But Edward said, I want to be sure that I think a lot about my own dying. My own death. And, and, and think about the common circumstances which attend to death. Well, for the believer, the common circumstance of death is to be absent from this body and to be present with the Lord. 
It's not so bad if you're a believer. And if you, if you really believe what the Scripture says, to be true is true. And, and just in case you don't know, it is true. So, so Paul says, listen, you who have been chosen of God, beloved, put on, a, put on this, this kind of heart, and that is coming by walking with Christ. It's by the Holy Spirit's indwelling and working within you. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Wow. We struggle with that, don't we? Wouldn't be a bad resolution to say being sensible and recognizing that I'm unable to do anything without God's help, I want to resolve this year to forgive those who have hurt me and seek forgiveness from those I've hurt for the sake of Christ. That's a good resolution. And whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you also should too. <laughs> Think about that. Has anyone done anything against you that was as grievous as what your sins were against God, but yet if you're in Christ, God forgave you? How can you not forgive? That, that's what Paul is saying here. Get, forgive one another in the same way Christ the Lord has forgiven you. Uh, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You see, that's what is not happening in the church according to Barna. The, the word of Christ is not dwelling richly within us, but rather the culture is having the effect on us rather than the word of Christ having its effect on us. Sing to one another. Sing with one another. Worship together. Glorify God together. together and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, whatever you do tomorrow, whatever you do next week, whatever you do for the rest of your life, do only that which you can say, I'm doing this for the sake of Christ. Not things that you can, you'd want to hide the fact that you belong to Christ. But only things that bring honor and glory and exaltation to the name of Christ. Well, resolutions are tricky things. Resolutions are strange things in many ways. We make them and we forget them. Maybe we ought to take a, uh, an example from Edwards and make biblical rev resolutions based on our desire and our, our need to glorify God above everything else and then trust Him to fulfill those in our life for the next year. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, as we, we bow here in your presence, we do so, Lord, acknowledging that we can do nothing. That it's only by your strength and your grace that we can make a resolution and keep it that we can continue in the walk with, of faith. It's your strength and your grace, not our own. Father, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit will revive us individually for this new year. 
and that our purpose as a church and our purpose as individual believers will be to glorify you and everything else will fall in place. Even as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Father, help us get our eyes off all the other things and our eyes on your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.